sports fans, and welcome to another episode of the South Texas Border Sports Podcast. Don't forget, you can catch all of our episodes that air every Monday on anchor.fm forward slash STBS. You can also catch our podcast via Google Podcast, Apple iTunes, and Spotify. Today's guest, he is one of the original voices for the Rio Grande Valley Killer Bees back when they existed. He has done also some work for the original version of the RGB Dorados. He has done multiple sports, and he's even got, gotten to call a or public address announced a fight for Muhammad Ali. My guest today, he is from the area of the Coastal Bend near Corpus Christi. He is Dennis Scott Ballweg. Dennis, welcome along. How are you? How is everything going? I am doing fine, Ray. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for taking the invite. Dennis, I've got to ask you, you know, you've had many years in working sports, but how did your crack in working sports get started? Well, I mean, that goes all the way back to when I was a kid. I grew up in St. Louis and uh, listened to Cardinal baseball religiously. And I told my grandmother, who who was my uh, one of my best friends listening to baseball, I said, you know, I want to do that someday. I listened to uh, Harry Carey and Jack Buck in Cardinal games for years. And um, so I, I went to uh, the University of Missouri, Columbia uh, School of Journalism, got my degree. And the first um, job that came along was uh, in El Paso. And I told my mom and dad, I'm heading to Texas. So that's what I did. And I worked in El Paso for about seven years. I did uh, play-by-play, well, actually color for UTEP for one season, uh, UTEP football. And I was scheduled to do basketball, um, but I got a better offer uh, to come to the Rio Grande Valley. And uh, so I took it. Uh, it. People think that if you're on TV or on radio, you make a lot of money. Well, that's just not true, <laughs> depending on the size of the market you're in. But uh, what, um, what I did is I decided to go to the Rio Grande Valley and go to Channel 4, which was probably the best thing I could ever have done. KGBT, uh, at the time under the um, uh, media system, was just the best television station I've ever worked for. So I got an opportunity to work uh, for them. And uh, my very first assignment was to do the 10 o'clock sports uh, uh, first week of high school football. And as we all know, uh, high school football is like a religion in Texas. So uh, that was my first uh, uh, assignment. And uh, it worked out well. Uh, They wound up selling to another company back in 1986, I think. And so that enabled me to um, get into a different aspect of television, but also keep my um, my foot, my toe in the water of sports. So I, I got into sales and I, I wound up uh, working in sales for 33 years. I did broadcast in front of the camera for 12 and then 33 years 
uh, in sales. But while I was doing sales, um, I uh, had an opportunity to do uh, high school football. I did a whole bunch of high school football for different different uh, schools. And then when the Killer Bees came along and the Dorados uh, did them for five seasons each. And then um, the Vipers, uh, 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 you know, had Alex Del Barrio doing their games. And then he got a job uh, with Harlem Globetrotters and he recommended me. So I did them for three seasons. And um, I think the last thing I did before I moved to Corpus Christi was I worked with Mark May uh, on MISD uh, doing some high school games there uh, on TV. Uh, and, and they have a really terrific production crew. So hats off to that group. Uh, and so I'm up here in Corpus Christi and I haven't uh, been doing any play by play here because I didn't really, I don't really know anyone. Uh, but I did apply to do the play-by-play uh, -play play for the the uh, Corpus Christi Rays, the ice hockey team here. You know, the Valley doesn't have a team anymore, so uh, they have one here. But whether I get hired there is another story. So I just uh, um, have that uh, coming up as a possibility. And uh, in the meantime, I think, you know, you and I talked about this before we went on. The uh, fact that I, I have to keep busy in sports. And so uh, for the last two seasons, I've done officiating in um, uh, high school volleyball, girls volleyball, and uh, umpiring girls high school softball. So I've been busy. And now this fall, I'm going to go into uh, teaching, into uh, substitute teaching, uh, just in case I get the, uh, the gig with, with the, the Rays. So I'm trying to keep busy, even though I'm retired, but I'm doing things that I want to do instead of what somebody else wants me to do. Absolutely. And, you know, you've always been a passionate guy for sports and whatnot, but is it fair to say that the Cardinals are your first, uh, are your first sports team that you fell in love with? Oh, sure. I grew up with them. You know, I worked at Bush Stadium for three years. Um Back in 65, 66, and 67, I had to go to a World Series uh, when they played Boston in 67 and won. Um, and uh, went to a you know all-star game. Uh, I even uh, was uh, working there the night that the Beatles were there. And uh, I was in their locker room with them because I was able to uh, uh, carry some equipment in. I was asked to to help them out. And when I went in there, all four of them were there. And I was a 16 year old kid. And I was like awestruck because I was in the same room with the Beatles. <laughs> that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, working with uh, working at the stadium really, really helped me become more and more of a, a big fan. Uh, and of course, I, I really liked the uh, St. Louis football Cardinals, although they, did, they didn't play very well until the mid 70s. Uh, but I was at the stadium and I got to see all their games. And then when the Blues came to town, the hockey team, uh, yeah, I, mean, I took that city by storm. And so I, I wound up uh, getting season tickets for a couple of years uh, before I went away to Mizzou. So, yeah, you can say that the Cardinals were my number one team, but I had hockey and, and, uh, and football uh, close second and third. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, it, you, br you bring in a, a perfect segue in – also says staying in the loop of sports, but I've, I've got to ask you now that you've done a little bit of the officiating 
and the broadcasting. Do you kind of view sports a little bit differently now from a umpiring perspective? Absolutely. Ray, you don't know how much I now appreciate what an umpire has to do or an official, because first of all, um, well, you have to, you have to be trained. And, and uh, I, I became a member of TASO, Texas Association of Sports Officials. And uh, they put you through testing and they put you through training. And it's, you get to look at any particular play once in real time. And then you have to make a snap decision as to what happened on that play. Uh, so I have a real um, uh, good feeling about uh, umpires and officials because they have a very difficult job. You know, if you, you and I are watching a game on TV, we see the instant replay, many different angles, and everybody gets critical of the umpires or the officials and say they did a lousy job. They only got to see that play once. And they got to see it at real time where everybody else is seeing it in uh, instant replay in slow motion from nine different angles. And, oh, he missed it all. Why didn't he say that? Why didn't he call it? Well, it's because you only got to see it once. Uh, so it's a different way of looking at a game. You know, when I first started doing sports, um, Wow, a long time ago, I, I would get comments from people, oh, you got such a lucky job. It, it is a job, but you have to look at it differently because you have time constraints, you have deadlines to meet, you have uh, so many different things you're looking for. You're looking for detail, you're looking for plays and player numbers and yardage. And you're, you're paying attention to that sort of thing. So it's not like, ah, I can get up and get a beer, you know, uh, in the in the middle of a, of a play. Now, you can't do that. It's a job. And so now I'm, I'm looking at uh, a, a game with a completely different outlook as an official because you're looking for specific things and you have to pay real close attention to detail. And you have to know the rules. If you don't know the rules, you're, you're, <laughs> you're in trouble because a lot of fans think they know the rules but they really don't. Uh, or they, they know, they think they do, but they, uh, they don't. And if you have, um, um, give me the opportunity, I'm going to give you an example. Um, I was down in the Valley for this. Uh, there was a tournament, a high school girls softball tournament going on. And I had the next game. So I was sitting in behind home plate with my outfit on, you know, my uh, shoulder pads and chest protector and all that jazz. And the, the, the game that was on was, uh, uh, it does, doesn't matter what the teams were, but the situation was bases loaded, nobody out, okay? Now, I'm going to ask you to make the call after I set the play up, okay? Are you with me? Yes. Okay, here's the play. Bases loaded, nobody out. The batter hits the ball to the first baseman. She steps on the bag throws it home the catcher has her foot on home plate the throw beats the runner from third what's the call uh it's got to be out correct no incorrect she's safe and okay. the reason she's safe is because the first baseman stepped on the bag eliminating the force out 
There's no force out if you step on the bag and throw home. If you throw home first, initially, then there's a force out. But if you step on the bag, all players going to their respective bases have to be tagged. And if you think about it, and you've seen that a hundred times going all different games, that is exactly the right call. And I'm sitting there behind home plate. And this guy next to me, he starts screaming at the umpire. And I said, no, he made the right call. He was correct because when the first baseman threw home, the force out was off, off the table. You got to tag the runner. And he said, you don't know the game. And I said, well, that's why we wear the uniform and go to, you know, and get trained and go to the, uh, uh, go to the games and, 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 uh, you know, utilize what we've learned because that is one of the things that you have to make a snap decision and make sure you're correct. And that was the correct call. The guy that made the call uh, coincidentally ran into me at a, at a restaurant later on that night, my wife and I were having dinner and he, you know, everybody, all umpires call each other blue because you don't know their names. And he said, Hey man, you were there. I saw you there. And he said, that was right, wasn't I? I said, yes, it was. That was the right call because the girl at first base stepped on the bag before she threw home. And those are the kind of things that you run into. And it, it is, it, it's a, a, a snap decision. You have to make sure that you're right. And the guy that, that was arguing with me, you know, he walked away because I think he realized he was wrong. But at the same time, the guy on the field made the right call. You know, I, I mean, now that you explain it the way you just did, I can understand why he would have been safe. Now, had the catcher applied a tag, then I think it reverses the course and the runner it, coming from third to home would be also out. Yeah, yeah, that would have been a double play had she tagged her if she, you know, tagged her before she touched home but uh just just trying for a force out after you eliminate the force is not going to work you got to tag the player um after if the first baseman you know if, if if you've ever coached if you've ever you know played the game they tell you to especially if it's a, if it's you know a close game and, and I, I don't remember what the score was but it was one of those uh very tight games it was a scrimmage so it really the score really didn't make much difference but um you always want to get the lead runner. You always want to take care of that. But in in uh, in softball at that level, now remember we're talking about young girls, young ladies just learning the game. Sometimes you want them to make sure that they get the right, do the right play, make the right play. But you also want to get the out. Now I don't know what the score was, and. Had she been in, at the varsity level, it may have been a varsity game. I don't, I don't recall, but um, she may have just decided I got the first base uh, out. I got the, the sure out right here. So I'll step on the bag. But when she threw home, uh, the catcher just didn't know to, to, to tag the runner. So that's the sort of thing that you learn as you grow up. Now I, I did middle school and I did junior varsity and I did some varsity. And uh, varsity, the girls are knowledgeable. Middle school and junior varsity, they're still just learning the game. 
and, and so it's, it's situations like that that make, enables them to learn the game. And you have to learn the game. You're going to make mistakes. You know, everybody makes mistakes when you're, when you're playing a game. Uh, you got to be, you got to have your head in the game and you have to make sure that you, you make the right call and you do the right thing at the right time because it could cost you the game if you don't. Now that, like I said, it was a scrimmage and it wasn't that big of a deal, but the call that was made was correct. As I'm being joined by Dennis Scott Ballweg, Dennis, I, I've got to ask you, you know, with the recent situations of players assaulting a game officials, has there been that part of training where you have been taught like where the student crosses the line and not that you ever, that, not that I ever want to see a situation like that in a sport that's not football, but you know, you've got basketball, you've got baseball, softball and volleyball. Uh, is there like a specific training for that for you, for you sports officials? Well, I mean, we, we cover it. Um, you know, and that's a rare occurrence. And I know that there was that uh, football player, the Edinburgh high school player that, that knocked the referee down, what was it, last season? Uh, but that's pretty rare. Um, but yeah, they tell us, you know, the first rule of thumb in that regard is never touch a player, never touch a coach, never touch a player. Um, and keep your distance. And, um, you know, sometimes coaches can get in your face. Uh, you, you walk away from them or you stand your ground and make sure because the umpire uh, or the official in whatever sport, um, they have the upper hand. And they told us that, you know, you have the option of throwing somebody out of a game. Now, I never did. I've never done that. But it, because it's never gotten to that point. Um, but I've had officials, uh, coaches rather, uh, yell at me and, but it's funny, you know, uh, one time this was here over here in, in Corpus uh, Ingleside High School. Um, I'm, I'm the field umpire and I'm between second and third. And there was a close play at third base. And the coach was in the fir- on the first base dugout and it was close play. And he came bolting out of the dugout and he was screaming and he's got a uh, take care of his girls and he's going to make sure he's got to fight for him. And I said, I understand that, but I'm on top of the play right here. I'm right here. I can see it. You're about a hundred feet away and you think you're right. Well, I was right there. And so anytime that that happens, um, I said, if you want me to confer with my co-official, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And the, you know, you ask the other umpire and then he said, he tells me what he saw because uh, he was even closer than the coach was. And so, yeah, he, he said, no, nah, she was out. She was out. It was close, but she was out. Okay. And so you go on from there, but there's never really, I've not encountered any, any touching or any kind of situation that would uh, entail uh, having to throw somebody out. But uh, I did encounter something, you know, sometimes when you do officiating, you can expect the unexpected. Now I was. Now this was in the valley. I was at, uh, I believe it was Hidalgo High School, and I was doing a varsity game. And 
I was between second and third, and there was a close play at third. Now, the the runner was, you know, heading to third, and the girl at third caught the ball and tagged her. And I made the call, and then I had to look away and look at first base to make sure in case they put the ball over there. Well, immediately, the third baseman and the shortstop came up to me and said, can she get in trouble for cursing? And I said, oh, well, yeah, but uh, I didn't hear her say anything. And she told me what she said. She dropped an F-bomb on her. Now, this is like a 16-year-old girl. And, and I said, okay, time out, time out. Now, I, I'd never encountered anything like this before. Um, but I know that you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that in grade school or high school or college, even in major leagues. They don't allow that. They'll throw you out. So what I did is, is I went on my instincts and I contacted the other, the, both coaches. I said, every, both you guys come out here, ladies, I guess. They both came out on the field and I said, look, I didn't hear her curse, but I did get two players come up to me at the exact same time saying this happened and she said this. I said, but I didn't hear it. So I do not want that to ever happen again. Because if it, if it does and I hear it, then I'm going to throw the individual out. And I looked over at the coach that was, you know, she was at the third base, uh, on the third base line. And I said, I don't know if you heard it or not. I didn't. But if you did, you know what I'm talking about. And she kind of, you know, sheepishly nodded her head and said, yeah, okay, gotcha. So that worked out without any incident. But stuff like that happens and you just don't expect it. And, and you just have to rely on your instincts of what you know is right and what's not right, and what you've been trained for and what you understand should be the way to do things. And so I made the call. It was basically a warning and um, play went on and nothing like that happened again. So it was it was an interesting situation, though, because I had never encountered something like that. before. But as a game official, I I've I've got to ask you, you know, when you have that coaches meeting before the before the game starts, shouldn't that be like their pregame warning? If there's like any, um, I, I guess not a high level of rivalry games, but shouldn't that just serve like as a general reminder? As hey, look, if you if either one of your teams starts purposely throwing at players, that's it. I'm not even going to issue your warning. Well, uh, I, I don't think we've ever taken it to that level because you don't want to anticipate something like that happening. So what we do, I mean, we have a, a the, the home plate umpire is the one that's in charge and he tells uh, he or she tells uh, the coaches, you know, the, you know, the, the basic rules, we go over a lot of things, the ground rules and, you know, what's fair and what's foul and, you know, uh, any obstructions or anything like that. And yeah, we do say, and let's keep it good sportsmanship. And I, I have a saying I, that I was told a long time ago, you know, we're not doing anything important here. We're, we're just playing softball. That, you know, that this is a game. Nobody's going to die from our efforts here. So let's keep it on a on a very even keel a good sportsmanship let's have fun let's enjoy it and then uh that everybody will learn from it and and we'll go on from here because at the end of the day everybody goes home and um everybody you know 
somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, but then there's always the next game. So you, you say things like that. And you try to stand your know, good sportsmanship is, is a, a major part of it. Now, here's another thing that, that uh, you may not know, but the coaches know that if they get thrown out of a game or a kid gets thrown out of a game for doing something like that, you have to, I mean, you have to answer to the school board. You, you have to go, the coach does anyway, not kid. I don't know if the kid would, it depends on what they would do. Uh, throwing at a batter, I, I never, more often than not, the, uh, uh, especially the younger girls, um, they're just trying to get the ball over the plate. <laughs> and whether they do it on a regular basis or not remains to be seen. The older girls have more about control over how they get the ball over the plate. But uh, as far as throwing at a batter, no, nah, I've never seen that. Uh, I mean, I some batters have gotten hit, yeah. But I, honestly, I never, ever thought that that was uh, done purposely. These are just kids. These are just young ladies that are just trying to learn the game and be the best that they can be. Uh, I, I don't think they've gotten to the point of, I don't like you, so I'm going to throw at you. At least I had never encountered that. But, you know, I guess that can happen. Uh, you see it at the pro level sometimes where somebody gets hit, and then the next time, you know, the, the next team gets out there and they throw at a batter. You're talking about pros there. But uh, at the high school level, I've yet to see it, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. You know, it could happen, but I've not seen it. Absolutely. As I'm being joined by Dennis Scott Balwig, Dennis, I've got to ask you, you know, um, you, you've been doing this umpiring thing. You, you've seen sports from all, all over the angles now. But what, what's been your favorite event that you've either worked, uh, worked at, broadcasted? Well, I guess I'm going to say two of them. There were two things that I uh, hold close to my, my, uh, my sports heart, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. uh, the first was 1987 when I had the opportunity to, inter to, uh, to introduce Muhammad Ali in the ring down in um, LaFaria at uh, the, um, uh, the fairgrounds there. As he came in, uh, he was in the valley all day. You know, he went to, to uh, he, he, Ali had been retired. He'd been retired by, I don't know, six, seven years or so. I think his last fight was 1980. And so I um, was uh, with him and the promoter and, and I had an opportunity to uh, introduce him in the ring uh, at the Mercedes, or Mercedes, I said LaFeria, Mercedes Livestock Show and Fairgrounds. And uh, that was a big thrill for me because I, uh, uh, I kind of did, you know, the, the, not the Michael Buffer thing, but I really, really got into it. You know, three-time heavyweight champion of the world, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I did that whole number, and he leaned over, and he said to me, that was the best introduction I've ever had locally. He said, that was really cool. Well, that's all I had to hear. So I, I, uh, uh, I pointed to one direction, and I said, who's number one? And they said, Ali. I pointed to the other direction. Who's number one? Ali, and everybody screamed. And then he reached over, grabbed the microphone, and he said, it's Joe Frazier. <laughs> and that got everybody laughing and, and, and uh, made everybody feel great that he, you know, uh, he's a human being and he, he can be funny. Uh, he had um, 
uh, a debilitating uh, illness that kept him from, uh, I think he had Parkinson's disease that kept him from, uh, you know, being able to speak like he used to before, um, before he retired. But he was still a great guy. And that, that was one of my biggest thrills. My biggest thrill in sports was being able to introduce him. And my second was the, uh, the Vipers uh, championship in uh, 2013. That was that was true. That was the first championship game I'd ever called. And uh, I, I really, I was preparing myself for it. And I knew what I was going to say and how I was going to say it if, if they won. And uh, sure enough, they did. And so that that really was a was a big thrill for me. So I, I really enjoyed that. But those are the two that stand out in my mind. There were there were other things that I did too, but this that one, those two pretty much were the right at the top of the list. Uh, you know, for me, being that uh, that I was introduced to hockey at a relatively late age of around twelve, maybe thirteen years old. Uh, of course, I'll never forget the Stanley Cup championship that the Stars uh, won. Mm-hmm. Nineteen ninety nine. Yep, uh, I was twelve or thirteen at the time, and um, the other event aside from Killer Bee hockey games was uh, when you. Um, I was barely a sophomore in college. Mm-hmm. Now I'll never forget this. I was a real young, real inexperienced. A high school sports writer for Bay Area Sports. And you, out of the kindness and generosity of you, you had an extra media pass for the 2005 All-Star game, if I want yeah. to call it. Yeah, I remember that, Ray. I remember that. Yeah, I, I, I still have that souvenir somewhere, the, the media credential. I still have it. And I'll never forget how all the mascots put on a very entertaining show during the intermissions. I don't know if you recall that. Yeah, sure. I mean, that was a fun, that was a fun event. And, and all-star games are, uh, it's more about the event than the, you know, the final score because it's, it's really an exhibition, but at the same time, you strive to be the best you can be to be able to be on on an all star team uh, in order to be able to uh, to get there. But yeah, uh, that was a that was okay. I I, I remember that uh, distinctly uh, as as um, they wanted us. I remember I was with Televisa uh, at the time, and uh, they wanted us to televise it, and we and it was in the like a Wednesday. Yes, and and, and I don't. They didn't understand that the the network, Televisa Network, was not going to preempt their novellas for a hockey all-star game. They just weren't going to do it because there's just too much money involved, too many uh, too many advertising dollars that would have to be eliminated uh, in order to be able to put that game on. But but to me, hockey in person is much, much better than on TV because it's so much easier to follow the puck in person than it is uh, on television. Uh, You know, I've, I've learned to, you know, do both, but at the same time um, it it was uh, something that uh, I really enjoyed. You know, when I was, uh, uh, I think I was 21 years old, uh, a buddy of mine and I bought season tickets to the St. Louis blues 
And we sat up in the you know, third row from the top, uh, right at center ice. And it, it was um, uh, one of those things where I was, you know, trying to learn how to be a sportscaster. And so I would bring my, um, my recorder with me and I would do play by play on my recorder at, from my seats. And I wondered if it was bothering anybody that I was doing that. And the people around me all knew me and they knew I was a student. They said, no, we don't have to buy programs because you're doing the play-by-play. -play, so we, you know, we can hear what you're, what's going on by just what you're saying. So that made me feel good. But, you know, that in itself gave, gives you a, an idea as to, you know, how people get involved and, and you know, get, get excited about a hockey game because they're, doing, they're watching it in person. So, yeah, in person hockey, as you, uh, you know, you said, it, it's so, um, it, it's an exciting game to watch in person because you're right on top of the action. Yeah, I, I vividly remember uh, that all-star game because, A, I, I guess, and I guess I'm a bit impartial about it, but I felt like the Southern Conference uh of the CHL just had, I guess, better sports writers per se. I mean, at the time you had Greg Rajan, you had Todd Mavrellis uh, covering those games yeah. back in the time. And boy, they had some really, really riveting takes on this hockey league back when it existed uh, back in its time. Yeah, I don't think the CHL exists anymore. I think they merged with the ECHL, uh, East Coast Hockey League, but which goes from coast to coast. So I don't think the CHL is around anymore. No, I, I don't think so. I, I really don't think it is. But when I was, um, I guess, a teenager, the CHL existed back then because uh, it, it, it had been around a while because the, the St. Louis um, uh, hockey franchise that they had was a farm club of the Chicago Blackhawks. It was known as the St. Louis Braves, and that was the Central Hockey League, uh, in the Central Hockey League. So I would go to those games just to, you know, indoctrinate myself to the to the sport itself. And then when the expansion came along, um, the CHL just went away. I don't I, I don't even know where it went. Uh, so when I came back to the uh, to the Valley, and I saw that the, the Valley had a team. And I said, they're in a CHL. I didn't know that existed anymore. So sure enough, there, there it was. But now it doesn't exist anymore. It, it merged. You know, hockey leagues uh, sometimes just, uh, depending on what happens to the teams and, and how they're supported and that sort of thing, they evolve into something that is going to work, uh, that's going to enable more fan base to, to uh, take part. The Valley was just a... Uh, it, was, it was a difficult situation because I don't know if you remember, but we used to call the, uh, the four teams in, the, in, in South Texas, the South Texas Diamond, because you had Austin to the north, the Valley to the south, Corpus to the east, and Laredo to the west. And so you had four teams right there that were playing each other all the time, and they developed rivalries. And so when the, those teams just kind of all of a sudden dissipated, um, it was Austin, I believe they went up to the AHL. Uh, that's a step below the NHL. So that was a big mark for them. And then Laredo went out of business 
and Corpus dropped down to the NAHL, which is a junior league. And so all of a sudden, the Valley didn't have anybody to play. Their closest, their closest team to play was in Dallas or up by Allen, which is a uh, right, out, right south of, of Dallas. So that, that's a 500-mile uh, one-way trip. So they couldn't, they couldn't afford to do that. So that's why they went away, uh, because things change. They always do. But uh, it, it, a lot of it is based on what's, uh, what's supporting the teams. But when things like that happen, you, you just have to go with the flow and just, just accept it. So uh, they still have hockey here in Corpus Christi. Uh, it's still a junior league. They're just young kids, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids. But um, who knows how long they'll be here. You know, I thought COVID was going to knock it, uh, knock them out. But they're back. They're coming back. They've already announced it. So, you know, that sort of thing happens and, and just you just have to go with it. You know, even look at uh, Major League Baseball where teams don't get support sometimes and they move on. NFL, uh, teams don't uh, get uh, you know, stadiums, you know, you don't get stadiums. And so they move to another city that will buy, build a new stadium for them. It's happened to, to several teams. So, you know, that sort of thing, have change is inevitable in every sport. It's just going to happen uh, or, you know, any and everybody, and sometimes when you least expect it, but it does happen. So that's life in sports. <laughs> Dennis, I would like to thank you so much for hopping on and taking this opportunity uh, to talk the many different aspects of sports that you have had per, per, uh, personally and, and professionally. Um, I, I mean, just uh, thank you for sharing some of these stories. Uh, greatly appreciate you uh, stopping on by. Anytime, Ray. Anytime you need uh, uh, to fill in the blank, just give me a call. And we'll we'll uh, we'll knock one out again. And uh, best of luck with you with Border Sports and your podcast. I uh, hope that uh, becomes a big stepping stone for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm stepping into my third year. This is uh, barely my. Uh, 19th month doing this podcast and the only reason why it was started because let's face it local radio it is what it is down here I, I guess you just gotta have the deepest pockets to have some sort of local programming if you want to have yourself but uh, for me uh, when the pandemic started I figured well, why not you know have something uh, local have something uh you know for the people have outside the box stories that exist in the valley that are tied into the valley and that's the purpose of it that's the purpose of the podcast that i recently started well i think that the valley is just primed for for uh, for sports i mean everybody loves football down there and there's so much of it and that's what kind of killed local radio because there's so much football that uh most of the radio stations just couldn't center on one team anymore because all of a sudden you have you know three teams in mcallen you've got two or three teams in mission and so on and so forth you know westlaco and bar san juan alamo you've got a bunch of teams over there now so you can't really uh put one team on and say, okay, this is the team I'm going to hang with. Uh, and uh, because then you're going to get 
people that, well, how about us? You know, that sort of thing. So, but I think with a, a, a podcast and, and what you're doing, you can cover as much as you want to, with as many teams as you want and do, uh, you know, whatever you have to do to satisfy as many people as you can. So that's a good thing. That, that's a real good thing because variety is a spice of life. Well, Dennis, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care. Hope okay, to have well, you on thanks soon. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. No problem. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, sports fans. Thanks for listening to another episode of the South Texas Border Sports Podcast. This is your host, Ray Silva. Be tuned next week for another great episode as we drop podcasts every Monday here on anchor.fm forward slash STBS. Don't forget, our podcast can also be found via Google Podcast, Apple iTunes, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.